We're Malachi chapter 2. As you know, we're going through the book of Malachi. So you can turn there to chapter 2, verse 17, or you can follow along on the screen. And it begins with this question. God says to the people, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, How have we wearied Him? When you say, Everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and He is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? This was the question the people of Malachi's day asked. Where is the God of justice? I know you have asked that same question. Where is God and where is justice when we see people who are good suffering and hurting? Uh, People who are Christians, people who are following God, people who are serving God, people who are worshiping God, yet they're struggling, maybe financially or they're hurting physically, or they are suffering oppression, they are hurting. But why? Why is that fair? Why is that just? Especially when we see people who shake their fist at God, people who despise God, people who don't believe in God, people who live a life of selfishness, and people who uh, harm others and hurt others and are violent toward others, and they are the ones who have a great life or have wealth or have an easy life. And we ask the same question they did. Where is the God of justice? We think that because we live in a world where God rules and He is just, that every time we have an act of goodness, we should receive in kind goodness. And if we do something that's bad, we should receive in kind something that is bad. And that does generally happen. If you are a kind, loving, compassionate person, you are going to find that in your life. Others will respond to you also with compassion and love and you will have a life like that. If you are someone who is always uh, trying to break the law and you're someone who is is violent and someone who's angry, you're probably going to have the results of that in your life. So that does generally happen, but it's not a true one-to-one correspondence. Every time you do something good, something good's coming back. And every time you do something bad, something bad's coming back. Life doesn't work that way. The people of Malachi's day had an even another reason why to believe life should be that way, because God had promised them. He said to the nation of Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. So that was the promise God made to them. So the nation as a whole kept God to that promise. And when they looked around and they saw Malachi's day, that things weren't that good and things weren't that great, And they felt like that they were obeying God. They were asking God, where's the justice? Where's your promise? But what was always problematic for them, what is also problematic for us, is that individuals can have a relationship with God that's different from the relationship the whole nation has with God. God had made a promise to a nation of Israel. Each individual in that nation, some of them were close to God, some were far from God. And so how God was going to bless and curse each individual as he's blessing and cursing the nation wasn't a simple one plus one equals two. The people observed it, and they were upset with it, and they questioned God, where is justice? Why isn't it fair? Why do bad things happen 
to good people? That's what they were asking, although the question that's answered in Malachi is the opposite question. Why do good things happen to bad people? But I know anytime we talk about God's justice, we want the answer to this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But I want you to think about it for a moment. Really, are we good people? You know, we like to think about this, that we are good people, and that when we suffer or things happen to us, that bad things are happening to good people. It was R.C. Sproul who said there was only one good person that had suffered, and he volunteered for it. Okay, so that's how he looked at it. So I can understand that, that in reality, Jesus is the only one who is a good person, and he suffered, but as he said, he volunteered for it. When we suffer, we're bad people having bad things happen to us, but I still understand what we're saying. We're talking relatively, and we're also talking about how we see people who live a life that's anti-Christian and against God, we see them prospering when those who name the name of Jesus are suffering. And that's what we're talking about. Why is that fair? You heard in the news this week about this young boy, Corey Brown. He was 13 years old. He had an argument with his parents. They took his cell phone away. He ran from the house that evening. His parents found him missing in the morning, and four days later they found his body. I don't know this family, I don't know this young man, but there's no family that deserves to have an argument and then their son be dead four days later. When I heard the story, it did bring me to tears because I have a 15-year-old son and I won't tell you too much because he's here, but you know, we have our arguments and our disagreements. Right? I, I can't imagine you know, just having a normal teenager argument and not having my son a week later. Why does God allow that to happen? Where is the God of justice? I do want to give you some answers because I know that's always a question we have. And when I give you these answers, I don't want you to hear me saying the reason why Corey died is one of these reasons, because I don't know. And in fact, that's the first thing we learn from Scripture is that sometimes we do not know. We always want to blame someone when there's a tragedy. We always do. We always want to know a reason why it happened. But sometimes there's no one to blame, and sometimes there's no reason for it that we know of. In Isaiah, God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God has an understanding. He has a perspective on humanity and and all of history and the universe that we don't have. And he has a way of dealing with us and bringing about his will and bringing about history that we don't understand. As hard as it is for us, sometimes The answer to why is simply we have no idea, and we never will. Maybe in heaven we will, but on this earth we never will. That's hard to take. We want an answer. Other times there is more of a clear answer. I'm going to briefly go through these because you've heard them many times. 
But sometimes God brings suffering for discipline reasons. Jonah ran away from God. God brought Jonah back to him by sending him into the belly of a great fish. He suffered greatly. Can you imagine doing that, how disgusting that was? That was God disciplining him. We're told by the writer of Hebrews that God disciplines his children. Paul said of the Corinthians, some of them were sick and even some of them were dead because they had disobeyed God. They ate and drank of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So that happens sometimes, but sometimes it's not because of anything we've done. It's a test. The disciples had seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people. It was a lesson to them. They should have learned something for the miracle they saw. So then Jesus gave them a test to see how much they had learned. And they found themselves in the middle of a storm. They hadn't learned too much, so they failed the test. But as many tests are, there's another chance to learn something and then another test later on. Sometimes God is strengthening our faith. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. As you know the story, God stopped Abraham before he plunged the knife into Isaac's chest. But in so doing, God saw the faith of Abraham, but Abraham's faith was strengthened as well. Paul talks about how he could understand what the Corinthians were going through because they were suffering because he had suffered. And he said they could understand what he was going through because he had suffered. You know this, the, the one person who knows what you're going through the best is the person who's gone through the exact same thing. And so sometimes God allows that to happen so that we can comfort someone else and help someone else. It's not always about us. So I may have to go through something so that I can help someone else that had nothing to do with me. Well, that's how God works among us. Sometimes it brings about greater good. Joseph was thrown into a pit, for dead, left for dead by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers. He suffered in prison. You know Joseph's story. But because Joseph went through all of that, his family were, were saved from starvation. His family was brought to Egypt. His family became a great nation. In fact, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So again, it wasn't about Joseph. It was about a nation that God was building, about Joseph's family. And God used it to bring about good. And sometimes it's only about God. Again, sometimes we focus on our suffering and think it's always about us. It's not always about us. Sometimes it's about others and sometimes it's only about God. There was a man in Jesus' day, you know his story. He was born blind and lived most of his life in blindness. Why? So that Jesus could heal him. So that Jesus could receive the glory. When God shows up and he does a miracle, when God shows up and he intervenes, when God shows up in difficult times, people notice and they praise his name. So here is a list. You could add to it, but there are reasons why good people have to go through bad things and suffer. But that's not the question really today that the people of Malachi's day were asking they were saying to God, why are all these bad people receiving so much blessing from you? So let me give you another example. Why do good things happen to bad people? Here's Bill Maher. I don't know if you know him, but he's rich. His net worth is $100 million. 
How many of us would like to at least try to know what that's like? Okay. So he's rich. You've probably seen his face, know him, so he's famous. He has a television show. Yet he is a strong, devout atheist. Sometimes he calls himself an agnostic or just someone who doesn't even care whether there's a God or not. He thinks people who are religious are stupid. He's critical of all religions. Christianity, Islam, doesn't matter which one. He doesn't think any of them are any good. And he thinks us who believe in a God are just, like I said, we're stupid. So he's outspoken. He's famous. He's rich. But he's not a believer in God. He's not a follower of Christ. Why? I mean, we might consider him a bad person. Why is he so blessed? Why is he receiving so much fame and fortune? Why? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons, and then give you the reason that is in Malachi chapter 3. One reason is we live on a planet that God created to be good. Remember there's, there was the Garden of Eden? Obviously, we don't live in the Garden of Eden now, but we don't live in hell either. We live on a planet that God created and said it was good. So God has things on this planet that bring happiness and bring blessings. And in fact, people who live their life in a way that is wise are going to be blessed just by the way the world works, even if they're not Christians or believers. This verse in Matthew, Jesus is in the context of talking about enemies. It's when he tells us to pray for our enemies. I think what Jesus is telling us that in one sense, God doesn't have enemies like we think about having enemies. I mean, I know there's in Scripture, it talks about God being against someone or bringing someone down or a nation down. But when we think of enemies, we're thinking of hostility or, or, or people that we don't get along with. And, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God brings certain blessings to everyone. When it rains, it just doesn't rain on the crops of the Christian farmer. Okay, And then everyone else is in drought. He brings his reign to bless everyone. So when you think about life, when we see the beauty of a sunset, everyone can enjoy that. Believer, unbeliever, good, bad, evil. When someone has a relationship in which they have joy, they're married, they have a close relationship, that's going to bring happiness. That's to everyone. If you enjoy a good meal, that brings you joy. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Anything in life that brings us joy can be enjoyed by believers, unbelievers, bad people, good people, anybody. Because that's how God has created this world. So that's one reason why good things happen to bad people. But here is the reason that's more focused in Malachi and the rest of Scripture. It's that God is patient. Peter tells us the Lord does not delay His promise. And the promise in Peter is the Lord returning. He's not delaying it because he's not keeping his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I've told you this many times and say it this way often. Today, because God did not come back yesterday, people will be saved and are in the kingdom of God, and we'll go to heaven when Jesus does return. 
So every day Jesus delays his coming means more people are in the kingdom. And that's why he's waiting. That's why he's patient. Think about it this way. Think about when you were a parent of a small child or you're a grandparent now and you have the grandchildren at home and they're picky eaters. Okay, so the first time your child doesn't eat the peas on his plate, you don't say, that's it, you're out of the family. I told you to eat them, you've disobeyed, you're gone. I'm cutting you out of the will, pack up your bags, you're out of the house. You're not my son, you're not my daughter anymore. We don't do that, do we? So yes, maybe the child is told, eat your peas, and the child says no. But you don't kick them out of the family, you're patient. Maybe next time you put cheese all over the peas, so maybe they'll eat them that way. Or you try to think of some other food that they could eat that would be just as healthy that they do like. Or maybe you try to encourage them. If you eat your peas, you can have chocolate cake for dessert. Or maybe if you eat your peas, you can get up from the table and you don't have to stay here any longer. You know, you know what I mean. You have encouragement. You have reward. Maybe there's even punishment. You have to stay here till you eat your peas. So they're there until midnight and then you finally let them go to bed, all right? But you're trying to help them, to teach them. You want them to grow up to be adults who eat something other than chicken nuggets or chicken nuggets. I mean, that's how some kids, that's all they eat is chicken nuggets, okay? Amen. Yeah, all right. Rex still eats them? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> all right. <laughs> so you get my point? We're patient. God is too. If God gave judgment, the first sin we committed, no one would make it past five years old. We'd all be dead. We'd all be in hell. So he's patient with us. And we who are Christians love his patience. We love his grace. We sing about it. But when we think about other people, why doesn't God do something about those reprobates? Well, you know, well, he's doing the same thing to them he did to you. And he did to me. He's patient with them. He's gracious towards them. He's waiting so they will repent and they will come to him. He's seeking them. Like Jesus said about the shepherd seeking the lost sheep and the woman seeking the lost coin and the father seeking at the horizon waiting for his son to come back. That's what God's doing. That's why so many people who hate him, despise him, don't even believe he exists, God has not brought the hammer down on them. And God allows them to enjoy blessing. And God even allows them to prosper. Because he has his way of working in our lives, bringing people to him. But I also can understand as we look at our world and we see the violence in this world, we see the chaos in this world, we see our nation that we heard in the news this week of New York State allowing abortion up till the very last second, and even our governor saying past that last second, we can have a discussion about it. When we hear that in the news, when we have a culture that has taken the biblical standards for sexual morality and has thrown them way out the window a long time ago, but now it hasn't just thrown them out, says what the Bible says is dangerous for society and for our nation. When we hear this and we see this, we wonder how patient can God be, right? Even with our children, there's at some point our patience wears out and they're just... Go to the room. Go to your room. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. It's over. So when is God's patience going to run out? There's going to be a time 
And that's what Malachi says to his people and to us, that Jesus is coming soon. That is the answer to where is the God of justice? Where is he? He's coming soon. And he is going to make everything right. He is going to reward the righteous. He is going to punish the wicked. He is going to balance the scales of justice. He is coming. That is the answer to both questions. Why do good people suffer and why do bad people prosper? Jesus is coming. And that's what Malachi says. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. God says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That refers to John the Baptist who did come to clear the way for Jesus. In fact, Jesus confirms to his disciples that the messenger to come was John the Baptist. So here's a prophecy. God says, a messenger's coming. He's going to get everybody ready. And that was John the Baptist. Then notice what happens. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire. That's Jesus. He is the proclaimer. He is the one who brings the new covenant in his blood. He is the one who fulfills the old covenant. He is the messenger of the covenant. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like cleansing lye. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. The Old Testament prophets, every single one of them, God gave them a vision of the future, a prophecy of the future, in which a Messiah came, a, a king of kings was coming, there was a, a ruler that was coming, there was God himself who was coming. And they prophesied about it, and Malachi did here. But in all of their prophecies, it all seemed like it was going to be one event. When the time came, he would come, and that would be the end of history. But we know that Jesus did come, but he's also coming back again. And so Malachi, in that first verse in chapter 3, is looking to Jesus' first coming. But these rest of these verses look to his second coming. When he is going to come, and he is going to purify, and he is going to do so with fire, as you do with metals, to get all the impurities out. You throw the gold into the fire, and when it's in the fire, it becomes pure gold. And he's going to come, and he's going to clean away unrighteousness and sin with lye soap. Now, we think about that, and we think, yuck. I've never used it. I guess it's an old-timey thing when, uh, you know, great-great-grandma made soap and made it out of lye. You know, we have uh, gentler things now. But the point... In Malachi's day, this was what you got the dirtiest dirt off with. And this made things the cleanest that they could be. So God is coming. It's like, I almost think of him getting that soap and rubbing it all over our faces, right? Getting all the dirt, getting all the sin, unrighteousness, wickedness. He's getting rid of it. 
And so even to Malachi's hearers and especially other prophets, they would hear about God coming and they would applaud. And they would say, yes, come now, God. There's so many reprobates you need to take care of. I want you here now. And there's so much sin and wickedness. Take care of it, Lord. And there's so many sinners. You show them what's right. And there's so much wrong in this world. I want you to make it right. And they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. But they were doing so in a hypocritical way. Because they wanted fire and they wanted face scrubbing with the soap on all those other people without looking at themselves. And so God's word of judgment wasn't always to the other nations. It was often at the same time to the Jews themselves. I want you to notice that when it says Jesus is coming back, who is he coming back for in Malachi? He's purifying the sons of Levi. He's not purifying the Egyptians or the Edomites or the Babylonians. He's purifying the Levites. They are the ones, God's people, they are the ones that need the Lord's coming to purify them. Notice what God continues to say in verse 5. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and cheat the wage earner, and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. Notice there are six specific sins that God mentions here. A sorcerer, a witchcraft, adultery, perjury, oppressing widows and orphans, cheating employees or people who have made a wage and you don't pay them, and mistreating aliens or foreigners that are in the land. Of course, this is just an example. These are six sins that God hates, but it's a list that's short because there's a whole lot more. But these six and all sins have the same problem. In Malachi 3, 5, God says, They do not fear me. And that's why they disobey him. I want you to think about this. Every sinner, and even we, I mean, we're all sinners. We're saved by God's grace, but we're still sinners. When we sin, we are saying to God, God, I don't fear you. I don't take you seriously. I don't care what you've said. Because if we did fear him and we did care and we did take him seriously, we would listen to what he says and we would do it. So someone who knows that adultery is wrong and they do it anyway, they're saying to God, God, I know what you've said and I know you've said there's punishment for that, but I, who cares? You're not going to do it to me. It's not going to happen to me. Or, I don't care what the punishment is, I'm just going to do it anyway. That is the definition of not fearing the Lord. So, what God says is that He is ready. He says, I will come to you in judgment and I will be ready. When that time comes, God is going to be ready to bring justice, to right wrongs, to reward the righteous and judge the wicked. But the question for us is, are we ready? Are we ready? Are you ready for God to come, for Jesus 
to be here. I want you to think about this first. If you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, you have never put your faith in Jesus, He is not your Savior, you haven't been born again, then you're not ready. Because the Bible tells us Jesus is coming, and He's going to come in the air, and all who believe in Him, those who have put their faith in Him, those He has saved, we are going to meet Him in the air, and then we're going to spend eternity with Him. And so the Bible tells us to look forward to that day because we'll be with the Lord and we'll be with Him forever. So are you ready for that day? It could be before I finish speaking that He comes. And if you have never put your faith in Christ, then you're not ready. He's going to be in the air and you're going to stay here. So first, hear that warning and this promise that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. You can do so right now. And if Jesus comes right now, you'll be ready. But I also want to speak to brothers and sisters, those who are saved, those who are believers. Are you ready? We can be ready in the sense that we, and I hate to use it, uh, this term, but it, we often think about it. We've got our ticket punched to heaven. You know, We know we're going there. We know where our eternity is. But our lifestyle doesn't match up with what we'll be doing in heaven. There was a list of six sins. The list is much longer. You may find yourself on that list or the list that's in the Bible and all the sins. I mean, if that's your lifestyle, if that's where you are right now, then you're not ready. If Jesus came today, we're here in church. I mean, we can't be in a better place than that when Jesus comes. You know, we all can be kind of proud of that if he came today, right now. We'd say, yeah, look at all those guys that stayed in bed or those guys that went on, you know, went to the, well, not the lake today, but they're on the way to the Super Bowl or something. You know, they, those, those guys, they weren't ready, but I was ready. I was in the house of the Lord. So that, that's, we got it right now. But what if he comes on Wednesday? <laughs> and you're there on Wednesday, and what's he going to find you doing? I often think about that. I don't want to be caught in sin when Jesus comes back. That's not being ready. And it's not just a moment of sin, but it's a lifestyle of sin. I don't want to be caught in an attitude toward the Lord where I don't fear Him, or I live in sin and don't care about its consequences or its effects on me. I want to be ready. I want a life that is living, pleasing the Lord. It's a life of righteousness. It's a life of being filled with the Spirit. It's a life in which the Spirit of God is producing fruit in me that all can see. That's ready for Him coming. And so we can be a Christian and still not be ready because we're not close to God and our life isn't right. So we're going to end our service and I want you to leave here today ready. If you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, do so today and be ready. If you're a brother and sister in Christ and there is sin in your life that needs to be confessed and you need to repent, then you need to get ready because the Lord may come back at any time. And when He comes, when we're ready, it's a joyous occasion. Heavenly Father, we do thank You. I thank You, Lord, that You are just God. I thank You that You watch and You see that Your children, as we do hurt and we suffer, You have a reason and You have thoughts and ways that aren't ours but make sense if we could only understand. I'm thankful, Lord, that also you see 
and you will reward us for the good works that we do. Uh, We're storing treasures up in heaven that one day we will enjoy because we're obedient to you. I'm thankful, Lord, for that. I'm thankful also, Lord, that you're patient. That, Lord, with us, with all who don't even believe in you yet, you're patient, you're gracious. I pray that we would never take your grace for granted and that we would never use your grace as a license to sin. So I pray that right now you would help us to examine our lives, help us to see who we really are and where we are with you, and help us answer this question, are we ready? Lord, if we are not, I pray right now in this moment, we would get right with you and we would be ready. For any who do not believe in you, I pray right now would be their moment of salvation. If you're hearing me, simply right now call out to God. Tell Him that you're a sinner. Tell Him that you believe in Him, that He died on the cross for you and He rose again. And that you're putting your faith in Him for your salvation and no one else, no other thing. Call out to Him with your words and He will hear you and He will save you. Brother, sister, confess that sin. Use that, that soap, use that fire to bring purity and refinement in your life so that you're ready for our Lord. Lord, I pray that in this time of singing and responding, you speak to our heart and we respond. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.